Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be discussing the bipartisan effort in the Ohio General Assembly to repeal the death penalty. We're going to be celebrating the release and exoneration of Christopher Williams, who was falsely accused and wrongfully convicted of participating in four murders in Pennsylvania. And we're going to be exploring the push to stop using police for traffic stops. In segment two, we're going to be talking about coping with life after a sex offense conviction and the consequences and duties of sex offender registration and the possibilities of ending that registration requirement early. To make sure that you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on YouTube. Look to the Law Office of Brian Jones for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. So Erica, did you see in the news this week that Ohio is the Ohio General Assembly is considering a bill to end the death penalty? Wow, I mean, I would be like super excited about this if I hadn't heard of this happening before and how it gets shot down. So can you tell us this time, you know, what what does this particular version of the bill, you know, what is proposed in this bill? So the bill is very similar to, you're right, several prior bills. Um, the Ohio General Assembly has taken this issue up six times in the last 10 years. Now, this one would abolish the death penalty by literally striking through the language in chapter 29 of the Ohio Revised Code, uh, title 29 of the Ohio Revised Code, and replacing any reference to the death penalty as an option with life without parole. Uh, the bill would modify the current language and protections that are afforded to those according, uh, accused of a death penalty offense, a capital offense, um, to life without parole as a, as a potential consequence, but would make sure that the same guarantees and protections are afforded to them throughout their uh, trial process. Um, it would restructure the criminal code in that regard, and it would also modify the funding for local and state public defender's offices. Now the bill also affects private prisons in the, in the state of Ohio, and it addresses a variety of other issues that need correction um, if we're going to eliminate capital crimes, such as adjusting and reworking the sentencing structure and some felony tiers. Now the bill itself is 356 pages of very detailed reform, and organizations like the Ohio Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the Ohio Justice Alliance for Community Corrections, and a variety of other organizations are working through parsing that language right now, um, looking at the suggested changes and preparing to testify in front of uh, the subcommittees that are gonna consider this bill. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm really hoping for the best. Can you talk a little bit about the bipartisan support that is, is really important to getting this bill passed. Yeah, so bipartisan legislation should really reflect both ideological points of view, and therefore it's gonna be a more complete reform that addresses a whole you know, rainbow of priorities. 
You know, for example, those that are traditionally in favor of the death penalty may want to see what the punishment will be if death isn't an option. And how will victims receive their justice if not for uh, a, retri uh, a retribution eye for an eye type uh, revenge situation? Now, this bill addresses those concerns by making sure that people who are convicted of what used to be capital crimes or what presently are capital crimes do not have the possibility of ever getting out of prison. Now, those traditionally opposed to the death penalty may want to ensure that the new imposed punishment, life without the possibility of parole, doesn't violate the Eighth Amendment and provides the due process protections that those who currently face capital offenses receive. You know, so the extra attorney that's required to be involved in these cases, the extra, um, the extra defense spending that is available um, on these cases. Now, in all candor, bipartisan legislation is statistically proven to be more successful in the legislature, um, and passing it on a floor vote, as well as more successful in overcoming the potential executive line item vetoes that frequently happen and are available to the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine. Wow, I mean, I think those are all really good points. And one thing I was wondering, I mean, we've really seen, I think in the last year or two, more than ever in history, I won't say more than ever, but in, in recent history, uh, how the people, can really help get out there and change what's happening in this world and change laws and you know really switch things up. In this particular bill, how can the people go out there and support the bill and make sure that it gets passed this time? Well, you're right. Now more than almost any time in America's history, save you know, maybe the American Revolution and, you know, the civil rights movement of the late 50s and 1960s, America is becoming more involved in the political system. And so we have made it a point throughout the course of this show, you and I together, to encourage people to get out and, and get involved. And so, you know, this is an excellent question, Erica. And, and in response, I would say this, the ACLU of Ohio, and Ohioans to stop executions um, have both released opinion polls that indicate that 59% of Ohioans support the repeal of the death penalty. Now, both of those organizations are really great places to get started with what is available from letter writing campaigns, um, calling your state representatives and state senators, calling Mike DeWine's office, um, you know, getting your local organizations involved. So your civic organizations like um, the Lions Club or Kiwanis, your religious family, getting them involved, you know, going to your church, your mosque, your synagogue. Um, you know, all of these organizations, all of these places are places that can be catalysts for systemic change and the drive for systemic change. You know, Governor DeWine has not allowed an execution since he came into office, saying at first that he wouldn't allow executions that might be cruel and unusual because of the, the uh, death method that Ohio is employing, and then later saying that the state is unable to find the drugs needed to carry out lethal injections, which is the only legal form of imposition of the death penalty in Ohio. So, you know, like I said, donate to the Ohio ACLU, volunteer 
with the Ohio ACLU. Um, Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty uh, is, is an, an organization. Uh, the nonpartisan group Ohioans to Stop Executions. Text, tweet, write your representatives, um, you know, tell everybody that you support abolishing the death penalty. And you know, of course, you don't even have to get involved on this broad-based scale. Post on your own Facebook wall, tell people, um, share the news that the, the abolition of death penalty is on the doorstep in Ohio, and we can push it through the threshold uh, through community action. I agree with all of that. I'm so happy that you were able to you know, let people know exactly how they can support this. So Erica, did you also see the exoneration of Christopher Williams in Pennsylvania? Um, the man that was falsely accused and wrongfully convicted of uh, accused of six murders, convicted of four after jury trials, and his release after spending 25 years on death row in Pennsylvania. I mean, <laughs> this is exactly why we want to get rid of the death penalty, because it's the punishment that you cannot take back. And this man is just textbook of not once, but twice having this happen. Can you go through what happened during Mr. Williams' criminal trials? So as, as part of our uh, law school requirements, one of the things everybody has to do is, is write what is kind of the equivalent of a thesis paper. And mine was on wrongful convictions in capital cases and why the, the number one reason to get rid of the death penalty is because of the possibility and in, in my research, the absolute certainty that people have been executed that were actually innocent. And that's not, that's not to say that they were technically innocent, that there was some legal loophole that they should have been able to jump through and, and get out of the consequences, but people that literally did not have any involvement whatsoever with the crimes that ultimately sent them to the gallows, the electric chair, or got a needle stuck in their arm. And you know, that nightmare scenario has happened many times in the course of, of American history alone. Um, and, and in my opinion, I, I agree with you 100%, Erica, this is the number one reason to get rid of the death penalty. And, and Mr. Williams, I'm sure, will be an advocate for that upon his release. Uh, this is one of the most disgusting cases of prosecutorial misconduct that I have ever read about. Um, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office uh, employed lying informants, hid exculpatory evidence, evidence that was demonstrative of Mr. Williams' innocence. Um, and now the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office has a conviction integrity unit. And so today, the district attorney's office is doing the right thing and has determined that despite their doubts, somebody seems who have been convicted twice um, for wrongful reasons, you know, was not responsible for the crime that he is presently awaiting execution for. Um, in all of the cases against Mr. Williams, uh, the evidence hinged on one man, James White. Now, he was also facing 
the death penalty for a series of horrific murders. And he struck a deal to name his so-called accomplices in those murders. Now, in exchange, the prosecutors promised to help him apply for commutation after serving just 15 years in prison. And so he and another snitch were at the heart of the state's prosecution. What the Conviction Integrity Unit revealed was that evidence of innocence was never turned over to the defense. Um, and that includes evidence of plea bargains offered to witnesses to encourage them to testify, evidence of prosecutors suborning perjury to secure the convictions, and evidence of other prosecutorial misconduct um, for all of these convictions. Now, Mr. Williams had two co-defendants. Christopher Williams had two co-defendants uh, when he was prosecuted. And one has already been exonerated and released from prison because of the, the rampant prosecutorial misconduct and use of perjured testimony by the prosecutors in this case. Now, his other co-defendant remains behind bars, but his case is actively being reviewed by the Conviction Integrity Unit. Now, it's important to note here that Mr. Williams, upon his release, um, had two execution warrants in his hand and has observed that had he been in Texas instead of Pennsylvania, he would have been yet one more added to the list of people who were executed but were actually innocent. I mean, it's devastating. It, it's not only the fact that you know, this has been turned over twice, but he's wasted so much of his life in jail trying to fight these false accusations. It's unbelievable and a great example of why you need to have a really good criminal attorney out there fighting for you and you know, understanding the laws and the strategies that are going to clear your name if you are in fact innocent and give you the results that you need, even if you aren't. That's absolutely true, Erica. I mean, that is such an interesting, dramatic tale <laughs> that you're telling, and it's unfortunate that it's all true. How is the appeal situation affected by two separate convictions? So first, Mr. Williams suffered from the bias described uh, by the conviction integrity chief. And where there's smoke, there's fire. Where you've been convicted of murder, you are therefore a murderer in your second case. Second, once Mr. Williams was exonerated of the first three murders he was accused of, he remained in custody waiting for his appeal on the second conviction uh, on one murder in a separate trial. Now, convictions and corresponding sentences are, are completely separate and apart from one another, and they have to be addressed by the Court of Appeals and, and the, the judicial system independently across all jurisdictions. And for somebody who's in custody to be fully and completely released, each of these cases has to be overturned. Third, and, and this is really important, just because a trial conviction is vacated for one defendant doesn't mean it's vacated for all of the other co-defendants. In other words, you know, just because one person is said to be innocent doesn't get everybody else who was convicted at the same time out of prison. Each individual defendant has to exercise their rights to appeal or post-conviction remedies and receive their own individual judgments. And this isn't a blanket release for everybody. Although each co-defendant 
um, the cases are often linked and heard together if their attorneys file simultaneously. So you can drum up some, some judicial economy in that situation. So this has been a really complicated process because of the multiple convictions that Mr. Williams faced. I mean, I can't even imagine the type of roller coaster Mr. Williams had to go through all of these years and how stressful that, that all was. And I, I feel really bad for him and his family. Um, so, I mean, the obvious question is going to be, you know, what kind of accountability uh, is there for the, the prosecutorial misconduct, the perjury involved in Mr. Williams' convictions, if any? None. None. Prosecutors always get away with this and people's lives are destroyed time and time again. What's available? Well, you know, Mr. Williams can seek damages. He will almost certainly receive a financial settlement from the state uh, for the two and a half decades that he spent in prison. Um, he can file uh, ethics complaints against the prosecutors. Likely nothing will come of it. Uh, time and time again, prosecutors get away with this sort of behavior. Hopefully, he will get you know more immediate benefit, more immediate relief, you know, from being locked away for two and a half decades from organizations like Project Innocence, Grassroots Law, um, and others that might host like GoFundMe drives, um, you know, allow Amazon wish lists to to give him you know somewhere to live because he doesn't have a home, you know, money because he's had no employment for two and a half decades, and other charitable donation opportunities for folks to help him get his life back together after it was utterly destroyed by these lying, smarmy prosecutors. Mr. Williams can sell the rights to his story for profit. Um, like many individuals have, um, you know, The Life of David Gale was uh, a very inspirational movie and is one of the things that actually caused me to go into this work. Uh, you know, after I saw that, the story of a man that was wrongfully convicted um, and put to death because of that wrongful conviction. You know, I, I hope that the prosecutors and the witnesses accused of bad behavior in this case suffer consequences. Um, you know, do they deserve to spend two and a half decades in prison? In my opinion, absolutely. Um, will they see the inside of a jail cell? Probably not. Um, they can be referred to disciplinary proceedings through the state bar. The witnesses could be prosecuted for perjury. Uh, what is the likelihood of that, Erica? Slim to none. I mean, I think that that's one of the biggest tragedies of all of this is that a man was locked up for a decade, two decades and a half. You know, it wasn't his fault. And the people that put him there are going to go without blame, without punishment. And they're going to keep doing it over and over again to more innocent folks. Well, you know, the thing is, it, prosecutors, and I've said this before, and I'll tell anybody that'll listen to me, say it, is that prosecutors are the only category of attorney that have a disciplinary rule written specifically for them. They are the only category of attorney that does not have an obligation to win at all costs. They have an obligation to do justice. And when that rule is violated, you know, hey, first and foremost, the fact that we have to have that rule at all is absolutely insane. Prosecutors should do their job and do it properly and do it without self-serving goals of ladder climbing and moving up through the political process. 
Um, number one, you know, those people, if, if that is your goal in life, you are a disgusting and pathetic individual and you should not be put in that kind of position of power. Nevertheless, we have the rule. The rule should be enforced and it should be enforced strictly and severe consequences should be brought down on the heads of prosecutors that allow wrongful convictions to happen, that hide evidence, they should be prosecuted, they should be incarcerated, the consequences should be severe and swift so that it, future prosecutors are discouraged from doing it in the future. I couldn't agree with you more and I'm glad that we continue to shed light on this sort of thing so that hopefully this will be another change that happens in the future. Well, Erica, did you see the other news this week about removing police officers from traffic stops? I, I mean, <laughs> it's iconic <laughs> to have them doing traffic work. I, I'm just surprised. Can, can something like this even happen? Can they be removed? Sure, why not? Police um, don't have to be doing anything. We, the people, dictate how they do their jobs, how policing works through our voice in the state legislature and in our local cities and towns. Police charters are set on a jurisdictional basis. So each individual police department is beholden to a particular group of people that vote for what they do that fund their budgets, that hire the leaders of those agencies. And if a jurisdiction decides to rewrite that charter and say they don't do traffic stops anymore, it can absolutely do so. You know, for instance, Berkeley, California passed a proposal to remove traffic enforcement from police duties. It's done, it's happened. Los Angeles, Philadelphia, New York, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Montgomery County, Maryland are all considering doing the same thing. What do we replace it with? Automated enforcement, things like speed detectors and traffic cameras. They reduce contact between drivers and police officers and reduce racial disparity by removing bias. Uh, a, a red light camera doesn't care if you're black or white. I mean, I think that's very interesting. And Cambridge is, is near me, and I, I didn't realize that they were going to be part of the, uh, the testing with this. Um, honestly, like even, like I've, I've grown up around friends who've had family members who are police officers and that sort of thing. And, you know, one of the greatest fears they have is having to approach strange cars all the time, especially at night. I mean, there's a lot of danger for the police officer too. Uh, but when we're talking about this on this show, what really comes to mind is the criminal justice reform. How is removing police officers from traffic stops going to help with that movement? Well, Erica, that's an excellent question. And first and foremost, an NPR investigation into the deaths of 135 Black people that were shot by police since 2015 found that more than 25% of those killings occurred during traffic stops. New York Attorney General Letitia James has noted that the vast majority of traffic stops conducted by the New York Police Department do not involve criminal conduct, yet often end in violence. 
So there's no crime going on, yet a citizen dies as the result of this citizen police interaction. Data consistently shows time and time again, black drivers are stopped and searched more often than white drivers by almost a two to one ratio. Despite searches that from, despite the fact that searches of white drivers more often turn up in evidence of criminal activity than searches of, of black drivers. Statistically speaking, police spend a lot of time enforcing traffic rules. Consider the Ohio State Highway Patrol, whose primary function is enforcing state traffic laws on the highways of, of the state of Ohio. They have almost no other function. And non-police enforcement would free up police resources, giving departments more time to focus on training, homicide investigation, human trafficking, violent crimes. And you're exactly right, Erica, when you say that the traffic stop is the thing that police are most often afraid of. That's the moment when they're always uh, so fearful for their lives. So if the thin blue line doesn't get behind this, you got to really ask yourself, why is that? Why wouldn't they support a measure to remove police from a dangerous situation. I mean, I think that that's a great question. And I would imagine that the answer is money. Somehow the answer is always money. <laughs> but I mean, I'm just wondering if, you know, will traffic stops become more dangerous if police are not involved? Are we concerned about people getting away with a lot more crime? Well, so we're talking about basic infractions like speeding, driving without uh, a license, expired license plate tags, taillights out. Uh, all of these things can be enforced by traffic cameras, first and foremost. Um, police officers don't need to be involved in that process. Um, and, and, you know, administrative officials can enforce these laws through access to BMV records and, and video recordings. Police can still absolutely monitor traffic, um, search and pursue people that are involved in crime and conduct their own investigations as necessary as it relates to violent crimes, traffic accidents, all of that sort of thing. Police just don't have to be placed in constant jeopardy by requiring that they approach every single vehicle that's committed a traffic violation. I mean, Erica, let's be serious. Have you ever driven on the highway? Yes, I have. I've been doing a lot of highway driving recently. <laughs> and, and of the cars and, and trucks and vehicles that are traveling with you, what percentage of them do you think are actually following the speed laws? You know, I got to say, I'm on a road trip right now. <laughs> and most of them are. I will say most of them are following. I haven't seen, you know, once in a while you see a crazy person dodging around, passing on the right. Uh, but, you know, out of the thousands and thousands of cars, it, it's got to be the very smallest percentage. You're right. So the, the point being here, the point being this, is that you know, we don't need to involve human life we don't need to risk human life to enforce these rules. There are a variety of other ways to do it. 
Now, there's a fear that if police aren't constantly in contact with the public, that, that crime is going to increase. And if there's no fear that a police officer might roll up on you at any point um, when you're out in public, then society will uh, degrade into an absolute state of chaos and lawlessness. But when you look at this through the lens of who that sentiment is viewed by, it really changes what that picture looks like. When you look at it from the lens and perspective of our brothers and sisters of color who haven't felt safe in our society for 275 years, it really changes how that constant involvement in people's lives, having police constantly involved in people's lives is perceived. Let's continue to watch this quote unquote laboratory as these individual states test different models of removing traffic enforcement from police duties with an eye to see how that helps racial disparity in arrests and incarcerations. Those are all great points and hey even now they put empty cop cars out there to scare people but they're not even in them so <laughs> I mean there's a lot to consider with this and I too am really excited to see what the results are hey they might even be able to collect more money for the state by having this as an automated process absolutely and you know if it if it increases compliance through passive enforcement, um, I, I, I see this as, as a win-win for everybody. So conviction of a sex offense doesn't always mean prison time, but it always means that you're going to be registered as a sex offender. So whether you're sentenced to prison or released on probation, adjusting to life after that sort of conviction is always uh, a new and, and really, in some cases, dangerous moment. But what opportunity is there to rebuild a new life even after the duty to register kicks in? Today in segment two, we're going to be talking about registration as a sex offender following a conviction for a sexual assault crime. You know, I, we did some segments on this topic right when we started this podcast i remember we were talking about it probably four episodes in and we really did focus on you know how lives are affected so and i was just stunned because i had not thought of all of the information that you were telling me from you know you think oh someone's on a list but there's so much more to it than that so can you tell us how registering as a sex offender will ruin your life? Well, in a variety of ways. So the duty to register doesn't kick in until after you've been convicted. And it's an onerous and public punishment that continues for years, decades, even for the entirety of your life after the actual crime. Sex offender registration can immediately disqualify you from employment, 
from housing opportunities, anything subsidized by the government or near protected zones is, is immediately off limits. It can limit your educational opportunities. It can limit your opportunities for state or federal benefits and student loans. And sex offender registration can make you a target in your community, a target for intimidation, harassment, social media abuse. And especially if you receive a community notification requirement, it can put your physical safety at risk. Sex offender registration will absolutely make you a target for all law enforcement, for everything moving forward as well. And, and I know this is not exactly what we're talking about today, but I, I feel I should say that this is absolutely why you need to fight any false accusations that come your way, any hint of an accusation, because unfortunately, if something goes forward, you could end up having your whole life ruined. And even if later on you're exonerated, unfortunately, your reputation can be ruined by the wildfire speed that social media has out there and, and word of mouth. It's just really scary. You're absolutely right, Erica. Time and time again, uh, people come into my office having spent five, six, ten years on the sex offender registry, um, and they tell me that they're innocent of, of the offense of which they pled guilty to. And I say, well, we can fight that. We can go back and, and we can try and reopen your case, but it's going to be a very long and very difficult process. Um, and, and sometimes we pursue that path and sometimes we pursue other paths, but uh, the 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 disheartened, broken sense that these people, these, you know, these poor, poor people have when they come to me um, is, is truly tragic. So the last time we spoke about this, we really talked about the different categories of sex offenders. So can you tell us a little bit about the different categories of sex offender registration uh, you know, that they have in Ohio? Yeah, sure. So there's there's three tiers. Tier one um, is a registration requirement for 15 years. They have to register um, once per year at their local sheriff's office. Um, there's a variety of offenses that that fall into this category. Um, any offense uh, against a child that isn't a tier two or a tier three offense, um, importuning, unlawful sexual conduct with a minor. Um, voyeurism, sexual imposition, gross sexual imposition, um, you know, a variety of offenses fall into that category. Um, tier two is semi-annual registration, so every six months for 25 years. And a variety of offenses fall into that category. Um, tier three is lifetime registration. You have to go in every 90 days, quarterly, and that's for the remainder of your natural life. So uh, the serious sex offenses, rape, sexual battery, um, aggravated murder, murder with a sexual, um, sexual motivation. Uh, you know, these sorts, of, these sorts of very serious offenses fall into the tier three category. Um, now, people not only have to register at their regular rotation, but they have to register in any jurisdiction that they're going to be at for more than three days. So 
know, if you're if you're a resident of Central Ohio, and you're going down to Hawking Hills for a weekend uh, a weekend camping getaway, you're going to have to register in Logan County when you're down there for more than three days. Um, if you live in one county and you work in another county, you have to register in both places. If you move, you have to register in the new county. Um, before you move there. And the failure to meet all of these requirements is a new felony offense, and oftentimes a level higher than your original felony. I mean, that sounds like, for one, a lot of work. But number two, a lot of heartache to have to continually walk around wearing a scarlet letter. And I'm just wondering, like, I know it's ruining so many parts of their lives, what if they do move? Is it possible for them to move? So they can. Um, and regardless of the tier level, you have to register where you will be for that, for that three-day period. So if you live in one county and you work in another, you have to register in both places. Um, you know, that failure to register is a new felony offense. Historically, it's been very difficult for sex offenders to find residential housing. Um, as, you know, as a registered sex offender, and especially so if they have a community notification requirement. And that's, you know, those are the individuals that, you know, you get those flyers um, in your mail that has their picture and what they did and, and all that information. Um, you know, sex offenders face discrimination in housing by landlords and, and by government programs, both legal and illegal discrimination, as well as facing neighborhood harassment due to the public availability of their status as a registered sex offender. Now, this has gotten so bad, Erica, and, and we've talked about this before. There are some experimental communities um, where it's just a whole community of sex offenders that live together almost like a commune. Um, and it really has improved the quality of their lives and, and their social engagements. Um, you know, can they move? Yes, it's incredibly difficult for them to do so. And in fact, Erica, there is a, a nationwide homelessness problem that comes as a direct result of people having to register as sex offenders. And people who are homeless are frequently targeted by prosecutors and police for additional prosecution based on their inability to have a stable residence, and then they get prosecuted again for the failure to register offenses. Wow. I mean, it sounds like they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. It's, um, it's quite a conundrum that they are in as uh, sex offenders, you know, trying to register and being being punished like constantly. They can never serve their time, go to counseling, you know, get treatments and get well, and then live a normal life. I find that to be really it's a scary situation for people. Well, for so long in America, you know, the old adage has been, you do the crime, you do the time. And once you've paid your debt to society, it's over. And it's no, that's no longer the case. The, the culture of fear that has been fostered and, and fermented in the United States for the last 20, 25 years 
um, has really made it impossible for sex offenders in particular, but really more broadly, anybody who's convicted of a felony offense to move on with their lives. Um, and, and it's, in my opinion, really an, an un-American way of, of looking at people. I agree. And I did, remember we spoke about that community in Florida that was very popular, uh, that the sex offenders started up and there's a lot of people that are finally living their life down there somewhat normally. It's too bad that that's what has to happen. So talking about this, is there any way that they could possibly get this requirement to register removed? So they can. Um, there's a variety of ways to do that. And we talked about one briefly earlier, direct attack of the conviction itself. If the conviction is overturned, the registration requirement goes away as well. Um, under the revised code, uh, there is a termination of duty to comply with sex offender registration laws. The legislature has provided a pathway, if you will, for those who have a duty to register to be relieved of that duty to make sex offender registration end. Um, that, is, that is quite expansive for juveniles who are put on the sex offender registration lists. Um, it's quite a bit more narrow for adults, and it really is a very complicated effort. Um, you have to demonstrate uh, almost like a multidisciplinary legal argument, legal and, and factual argument that involves sex offender risk assessments, counseling records, letters of support, um, legal arguments, and, and you have to really package that in a very compelling format because no judge wants to be the judge that lets somebody off of the sex offender registry who then goes out and commits another sex offense. Although what the statistics say time and time again is that sex offenders are by far the least likely category of offender across the board to commit future crimes. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it, it is a very complicated process. It is available, but a very complicated process. My heart goes out to them that you know really want to start a new life, have done the work and been, been, and done the punishment for the crime and just cannot seem to do that. So I'm glad that there are people like you that can help them start their lives over. Well, and, and Erica, that's exactly what this is all about. You know, everybody makes mistakes and sometimes those are really big mistakes, but everybody also deserves a chance to move past that. And we want to try and help people not only get past their mistakes, but make sure that they won't make those mistakes again in the future. And I, I thank you for having this very difficult conversation with me today. And to everybody listening out there, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this very difficult conversation and be educated and be informed about this information. If you want to continue to be informed about how a conviction of any sort will affect you or your loved one, how police and government is being held accountable on everything related to your constitutional and civil rights, check out the law office of BrianJones.com. Um, check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, and find us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at TLOBJ. 
We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as an in-depth discussion of the different types of civil protection orders that can be issued against people when they've been accused of either sexual misconduct or domestic violence. Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, you kid, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, when I part ways with my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.